long as I can remember, I've been fascinated with disasters, what happened, why it happened, and what we can learn from them. As an anxious person, learning about these whys helps me feel more in control of my own safety. As an empath, I just want to know and tell the human stories behind these disasters. Who survived, who didn't, and most importantly, how they lived. I'm Jenny, the Disaster Queen, and I hate that disasters happen, but since they're gonna, I want to learn from them. Whether it's an act of God, act of man, or accident, I'll cover it all here. So I hope you'll buckle up real tight and come along for the ride with me. This is the Disaster Queen Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Disaster Queen Podcast. I'm your host, Jenny, the Disaster Queen, and I really appreciate you joining me here today to once again break down a famous disaster in modern history, find out what happened, why it happened, who it happened to, and what we learned from it to make our world a safer place. Today's disaster is Apollo 1, the first time NASA ever lost astronauts on the ground. And I chose Apollo 1 because I am, as I may have mentioned before, low-key obsessed with NASA. And I've always been interested in Apollo 1 ever since I heard about it. I'm fairly sure the first time I heard about it was as a teenager when Apollo 13, the movie, came out and they talked about the fire, uh, the disaster of Apollo 1. And there was a scene between Tom Hanks, who played astronaut Jim Lovell, and the little one who played his little son talking about it and how they had changed things so that his dad would be safe. And it really stuck with me. So I started at some point looking into Apollo 1. And since then, I've watched many documentaries that talk about it uh, because I'm sort of obsessed with Apollo in general. So here we go. I want to remember Apollo 1. I want to remember those astronauts. And I want to talk about what happened. So let's get into it. The Apollo 1 disaster took place on January 27th, 1967 at Cape Kennedy in Florida on launch pad 34. And it killed three astronauts, Virgil Gus Grissom, Roger Chaffee, and Ed White. So before we talk about those three brave men who lost their lives, let's talk about Apollo 1. What was it all about? So one thing I want to mention is the Apollo missions actually started with 200. So the first one was like Apollo 201, 202, 203. And Apollo 1, as we know it now, is actually called Apollo 204. We'll talk about all that in a little bit, but one thing that I want to make clear is I'm going to mostly call it Apollo 1 for consistency to avoid confusion and because that's how it's known to history. It was going to be the first manned flight in the Apollo series, and the Apollo series was what was getting us to the moon. So Apollo 201, 202, 203, those had all been unmanned, so they had flown the Apollo spacecraft but without people inside of it, just kind of like remote controlling it from the ground. If you, if you will, it was all computerized. So this Apollo 1 mission with men on it was going to be the first big step in the series of missions that would lead to a man walking on the moon. And it was a test to see how well the Apollo spacecraft would actually work with people in it. So it was a pretty big deal. Um, NASA was on a tight schedule with the Apollo missions, and that is because... Uh, In May of 1961, President John F. Kennedy first promised that we would get to the moon before the decade was over. 
the U.S. was in a serious space race with Russia. We'll talk about that in a minute, but I also want to read a little quote from the most famous speech that President Kennedy made about this. He did mention it in his um, State of the Union speech in May 1961, but on September 12th, 1962, at a commencement address, he said, and this is what's most famously quoted from him, I'm sure you've heard clips of this, he said, we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard, because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills, because that challenge is one that we are willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. Kennedy, when he said that, this is what I remember about that speech. The word decade, he pronounced decade. So he said, we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. I can't do his Boston accent. But the way he said decade, decade, just really has always stuck with me in my mind. So I immediately can recall that famous speech when it's mentioned and kind of hear him saying that. And then especially because President Kennedy was assassinated um, and this space race with Russia and kind of the promise to Kennedy's memory that was kind of... um, exacerbated and the pressure was really put on even more after the president was assassinated to make his his goals a reality in his memory so there was a lot of pressure going into apollo here in 1967 it was planned apollo 1 was planned to launch february 21st 1967 as the first low earth orbital test of the apollo command and service module with men inside Let me mention briefly the space race. The Soviets were ahead in the space race during the Cold War. They were our big bad and we were the good guys. They had launched Sputnik into space in 1957 before the U.S. The U.S. was shocked by this. And then they put the first human into space, cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin, on April 12, 1961. And that was a big, huge blow to the U.S. So... The Russians were ahead. Of course, the U.S. did follow suit with many successful satellites and space flights of its own, um, but they remained one step behind the Soviets for a long time. And so the Apollo missions and the moonshot were especially loaded. Everyone in NASA, astronauts included, but mission control, engineers, the, the contractors who were designing the Apollo spacecraft called North American Aviation, everybody was under a lot of pressure going into this Apollo 1 mission. All right, so now we know a little bit about Apollo 1 and what it was all about. Let's talk about the astronauts who were in that capsule going on that first step to the moon. First, we'll talk about the command pilot, Virgil Grissom. Virgil was always called Gus, so we will refer to him as Gus. Virgil Ivan Grissom was born on April 3rd, 1926 in Mitchell, Indiana. He was probably the best known astronaut. Well, for sure, the best known astronaut on this mission. He was the veteran. Um, He had flown already on Mercury and Gemini. He was one of the very first seven astronauts. So he was fairly famous before Apollo 1. He uh, joined the Army Air Forces during his senior year in high school, which was 1944, as World War II was raging on. And he was officially inducted the summer after his high school graduation in August 1944. He used the GI Bill after the war and went to college and got a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from Purdue. And then he re-enlisted in the newly formed United States Air Force, 
determined to have a career in aviation. He got his pilot's wings in 1951, and he was deployed to Korea during the Korean War and flew 100 successful combat missions there. Once back in the States, he earned another bachelor's degree in 1956 and officially became a U.S. Air Force test pilot. A lot of astronauts were test pilots first. During his Air Force career, he achieved the rank of lieutenant colonel, and he spent some some time stationed at my hometown Air Force Base, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, which is part of the whole reason that my husband is here because his dad was in the Air Force stationed in Dayton, and even after he got out of the Air Force, they stayed here forever. So yay, right, Pat. Um, In 1959, Gus Grissom was officially selected as one of NASA's very first astronauts, the Mercury 7. And these guys were super famous. Like they were on the cover of Life magazine. They were hounded by the press. Their families were hounded. They were super celebrities. So Gus was definitely very famous even before Apollo 1. On July 21st, 1961, he was pilot of Mercury's second ever space flight, the Mercury Redstone 4. There was a problem on this one on splashdown. So he made it back to Earth safely. But when his um, when his spacecraft splashed down, the explosive bolts in the hatch unexpectedly fired. So they're supposed to fire like when the astronaut fires them to open the door. But they just went off on their own. So they blew out the hatch. So he's in there floating in the water in the ocean and his hatch blows open. So water flooded in and flooded the capsule, and he was able to get out of the spacecraft just fine, but while he was waiting to be rescued, he struggled to keep from drowning in the open ocean. Now, obviously, astronauts who are trained to have to splash down in the middle of the ocean are good swimmers, but his spacesuit was losing buoyancy due to an open air inlet, and so his spacesuit also flooded with water, so it was difficult for him to stay afloat, but he was able to stay afloat just long enough to be rescued, thank God. But the spacecraft flooded with water and became too heavy and sunk. So NASA was not able to retrieve it, which was a big loss for the program. This mini disaster will have bearing on our ultimate disaster that we are discussing today. So I want you to keep that hatch and the bolts blowing out in mind. Uh, Gus Grissom's next space flight was with Project Gemini. And he was the designated command pilot for Gemini 3, which was the first crewed or manned Project Gemini flight, and it flew on March 23rd, 1965. This made him the first NASA astronaut to fly into space twice. So he was a pretty big deal. Like I said, Apollo 1 would have been his third time in space in, you know, six years. Um, The two-man flight on Gemini 3 was with Grissom and John W. Young. And they made three revolutions around the Earth, and it lasted for four hours, 52 minutes, and 31 seconds. Grissom was then moved to the Apollo program, where he was eventually announced to be the commander of Apollo 1. He was married to his wife, Betty, who he met in high school, for 22 years, and they had two sons, Scott and Mark, who were teenagers at the time of their father's death. And I did want to mention his age. He was not quite 41 at the time of his death, which is so crazy to think that he not only died that young, but did so much in his career in such a short amount of time. He's truly an extraordinary individual. All right, next up in the capsule with Gus Grissom was astronaut Ed White. Edward Higgins White was born on November 14th, 1930 in San Antonio, Texas. So that made him only 36 at the time of the disaster. 
He became interested in aviation at age 12, and after graduating from West Point in 1952, he was sent to flight training. He got a master's degree from the University of Michigan in 1959 in aeronautical engineering, and he was then sent to test pilot training. And after passing that, he was sent, like Grissom, to my hometown Air Force Base of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, which I found out, interestingly enough, was a bit of a homecoming for him because he also lived in Dayton in junior high and went to nearby Oakwood schools, which is pretty close to where I am. It's our fanciest suburb. So good on you, White family. They moved around a lot as his father was also in the Air Force. Like Gus Grissom, he also achieved the rank of lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. And in 1962, he was selected to be part of the second group of astronauts called the Next Nine, those who were chosen to take part in the Gemini and Apollo missions. He was then assigned as a pilot of Gemini 4. On that mission in June 3rd, 1965, Ed White became the first American to walk in space, which is pretty awesome and amazing and made him super, super famous, more famous as an astronaut than he already was. When he was done with his spacewalk, he had a famous quote, he said, which was, quote, I'm coming back in and it's the saddest moment of my life. He really enjoyed his spacewalk and there's lots of like footage and quotes from him about it. It's very cool. Um, White and his wife, Patricia, were married for 14 years, and they had two children, Edward III and Bonnie. One thing I want to say about Ed White is I've obviously watched a bunch of documentaries on this and the space program in general, but he had the nicest smile. If you can, like, go find a picture or even better, some v- video footage of him, which is not hard. I'll put these documentaries in the show notes. I just loved his smile. That's just a, a purely, you know, observational thing. But I wanted to make note of it because it just had an effect on me. And I think, you know, if he's got family members still living, maybe they would like to know that. So that's Ed White. Uh, He was the second pilot. So the third in command on Apollo 1 was pilot Roger Chaffee. He was the youngest. He was almost 32. So he's a, a few weeks away from his 32nd birthday when he passed away which sucks. Oh, I hate it, you guys. All right. So Roger Bruce Chaffee was born February 15th, 1935 in Grand Rapids, Michigan. His interest in aviation began at age seven when his father, who was a former barnstormer pilot, took him on his first flight. He had a passion for the outdoors from an early age, and he was an Eagle Scout with the Boy Scouts. After high school, he took a Naval ROTC scholarship and attended the Illinois Institute of Technology before transferring to Purdue University, where he graduated in 1957 with a bachelor's degree in aeronautical engineering. That same year, he got his private pilot's license. And after graduation, he was commissioned as an ensign in the U.S. Navy, where he got his Naval Aviator wings in 1959. Between 1960 and 1962, including during the Cuban Missile Crisis, He flew 82 reconnaissance missions over Cuba. That's bonkers. He was promoted to lieutenant commander in 1966. And like White and Grissom, Roger Chaffee also spent time at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base here in Dayton, Ohio, earning his master's degree in reliability engineering from the Air Force Institute of Technology there. He had applied to be an astronaut in 1962. And while in Dayton in 1963 working on that degree, he found out that he had been chosen in NASA's third group of astronauts. Apollo 1 was his first space flight assignment on which he was to be the pilot. 
At the time, he was the youngest astronaut ever assigned to a spaceflight mission. And as I mentioned, he passed away a month before his 32nd birthday. Roger Chappie was survived by his wife of 10 years, Martha, and their two young children, Cheryl Lynn and Stephen. All right, so there's our brave Apollo 1 crew. Let's talk about what happened the day of the disaster, January 27, 1967. On that day, the crew of Apollo 1 was scheduled for a ground test on launch pad 34, meaning they were all strapped in wearing their full spaceflight gear inside their spacecraft atop the very tall launch pad, but they weren't planning on blasting off or leaving the ground. However, this was basically a dress rehearsal, so everything was set up as close to how it would be on launch day as possible. To that end, the three astronauts were sealed in that command module behind three, count them three, hatches, an inner hatch, and two outer hatches. Now, I want to note that the inner hatch opened inward from the inside. This is partially because of the accident that Grissom had when he splashed down in his hatch that opened outward, just blew out. So again, keep that in mind. The cabin was also pressurized with pure oxygen to the tune of 16.7 pounds per square inch. This was, this was called a plugs out test, which was supposed to ascertain that the command module could indeed operate on internal power only without being connected to any cables or umbilical cords on the ground. So basically plugs out means nothing was plugged in. <laughs> I had to watch like and read a few things about this to make sure I really understood it. But that's it's not that hard. It's basically that's what it is. Spacecraft on its own power without being connected to the ground. It had to pass this test before they could launch Apollo 1 as planned on February 21st. The astronauts entered the command module around 1 p.m. Eastern. The hatches weren't closed till around 2.45 p.m. So let's again talk about the hatches. There was a removable inner hatch that stayed inside the cabin of the command module. And then there was an outer hatch that was part of the spacecraft's heat shield. And then another outer hatch covering that one, which would also protect the spacecraft from aerodynamic heating during launch and in the case of a launch abort because of all the huge fire coming out of the bottom of that rocket during launch. So these guys were really sealed in there and these outer two hatches back in those days could only be opened by people outside the spacecraft. These were the days when, again, the capsule hit the ocean after re-entry and divers from a boat came and opened the hatch and got the astronauts out. So it's definitely nothing like the space shuttle um, that most of us are familiar with. So just keep that in mind. While they were up there, they were also doing a fake launch countdown. Like I said, it was basically a dress rehearsal. So they started counting down to launch, um, you know, after they sealed the hatches. So this has been going on for hours, an hours long countdown, which most countdowns we only hear like the last minute or 10 seconds of, but they're actually all hours long when they're doing all the things that it takes to get ready to go into space. So around 5.40 p.m., the countdown was paused because they were having communication problems between the astronauts and the capsule communicators or Capcom on the ground just a few buildings away. The astronauts were super frustrated by the communication problems, and you can hear many recordings, I mean, it's the same recording, but you can hear it everywhere, of Gus Grissom complaining about it, saying, how are we going to get to the moon if we can't talk between two or three buildings? Um, I heard it in an older documentary that I watched on YouTube, but also in the newer documentaries that I will link in the show notes as well. So, if, Or if you just Google it or search it on YouTube, you can easily find it. 
So the astronauts had been strapped in up there for about five hours. And I think the stops and starts and the communications problems were causing tensions to run rather high. And Grissom, in particular, people comment on was, you know, sort of disgruntled. Um, But the countdown was still on hold about 50 minutes later when a momentary increase of voltage on AC bus two was noticed at 6.31 p.m. And nine seconds later, an astronaut believed to be Grissom exclaimed, hey, fire. And then immediately after someone else believed to be Chaffee said, we've got a fire in the cockpit. Then there was almost seven seconds of horrifying silence, followed by a garbled, hard to interpret transmission that some have interpreted as either they're fighting a bad fire. Let's get out. Open her up. Or we've got a bad fire. Let's get out. We're burning up. You can hear it. It's on, particularly, there's a documentary that I recommend called Mission Control, The Unsung Heroes of Apollo. I've watched it three times. It's so amazing. And it's on YouTube for free because it's a YouTube documentary. And you can hear these transmissions on that one. And even if you can't understand exactly what they're saying, you get the gist and you know it's bad. Like, it's awful. Whatever was actually said, it was not good. So the three astronauts were in a very small enclosed space with an extremely flammable pure oxygen environment and tons of other flammable materials inside. This terrible, terrible audio transmission that you get can hear again on these documentaries and that all of Mission Control heard in real time lasted five seconds and ended with a cry of pain. The astronauts were likely unconscious by then and soon would be asphyxiated from lack of oxygen. Though ground crews rushed to try and get the hatches open, it took them a full five minutes because immediately the firehead was so intense because of the pure oxygen environment, which is extremely flammable, that it ruptured the inner part of the command module and was already outside the capsule. And so the ground crews had to fight the fire to even get close to the capsule to get the hatches open. So the three astronauts truly never stood a chance. Their autopsies were conducted by the U.S. Air Force pathologists who concluded that they had died of asphyxiation from carbon monoxide and other gases caused by the fire and that that the burns they sustained, though horrible, were probably survivable. You guys, I hate it. We should put that, if I ever do merch for this show, I think we should put You Guys I Hate It on a t-shirt because I know I say that a lot, but I do. I hate it. Okay. Before the astronauts' remains were removed, a note was made of how they were found. It was determined that Ed White had tried to open the inner hatch, which was following emergency procedures for them. He and Grissom were both out of their seat restraints. Chaffee was found still in his seat as, again, he was following emergency procedure which required him to maintain communication with the ground until White had opened the hatch. The three men definitely fought for their lives, but they only had seconds to try before the gases knocked them out and killed them. Of course, everyone was in shock. The NASA, the mission control personnel, the families, everyone was in shock. The nation was also in shock. We were so used to, even though we had been behind in the space rate, we space race, we were so used to American successes at this point. And it was really shocking to lose astronauts, not even in space, but on the ground. Separate memorials were held for these brave astronauts on January 29th and 30th, and hundreds of their friends, family, and NASA colleagues came to mourn them. 
the astronaut community was very close, and with most of them buying houses in one Houston neighborhood, so they were neighbors and friends, as well as colleagues and their families were friends, they were all very close. Here are some quotes from leading figures of the day about the incident. So this one's from President Lyndon B. Johnson. He said, three valiant young men have given their lives in the nation's service. We mourn this great loss and our hearts go out to their families. Vice President Hubert Humphrey said, the deaths of these three brilliant young men is a profound and personal loss to me. The United States will push ever forward in space and the memory of the contributions of these men will be an inspiration to all future spacefarers. And NASA Administrator James E. Webb, who, like the Webb telescope is named after, he said, We've always known that something like this would happen sooner or later, but it's not going to be permitted to stop the program. Although everyone realized that someday space pilots would die, who would have thought the first tragedy would be on the ground? And I think that really brings it home that everyone was so shocked that this could have happened on the ground and not in space. They never, it was, I heard someone else say in one of the documentaries, it was a failure of imagination. We never could have imagined it would happen on the ground and we never could have imagined that that test was hazardous, which we will again talk about in a bit. But first, before I move on to the investigation into what happened, I wanted to read some quotes from Some of the guys in Mission Control who are in the documentary Mission Control, the unsung heroes of Apollo. And one of them is from Chris Kraft, who is the director of flight operations. And the um, current Mission Control is named after him. He's, He's the pioneer of Mission Control. And the Mission Control is named the Christopher J. Kraft Jr. Um, Mission Control Center. So... He's, you know, a big, important guy. So what he said when he was talking about the mistakes they had made leading up to Apollo 1 and the rush they were in, he said, we knew there was bad workmanship. We knew that wires were exposed. I don't think any of us had recognized the seriousness of the danger we had put the crew in. I think that we killed those three men. It's almost murder. And again, he was saying this 50 years later in 2017, and It's just interesting that, you know, age and wisdom and time and retrospect had given him the courage to kind of say those things out loud. But I think it's really important that he did. And um, another quote I wanted to read you from that documentary is from Gene Kranz. He was um, a flight controller. He was made famous by his role in Apollo 13. He was the main flight controller that you see in Apollo 13, played by Ed Harris with the vest and the buzz cut. After the fire. After everyone was in shock, Gene Kranz called all his engineers and flight control personnel into a room and gave him a big speech that's gone down in history known as the tough and competent speech. And he told his people that they were all responsible for killing the crew because they had not done their job. He was including himself in this. And he said, from now on, we will be tough and competent. I want you to take Go back to your offices and write on your whiteboards or your chalkboards, tough and competent, and I want you to never erase it. He said, uh, and he says in the Mission Control doc, tough means we will never shirk our responsibilities. We will hold ourselves accountable for what we do. And competent means we will never take anything for granted, never stop learning. From now on, as a team, we will be perfect. 
And another guy from Flight Control who was interviewed, Cy Liebergott, said that that speech changed the entire attitude of who we were, what we did, and how we progressed with the future of spaceflight. And I think you can look forward to Apollo 13 and see what happened there. And you can really say that Gene Krantz and the speech he gave his guys after Apollo 1 probably directly affected the success of returning the Apollo 13 crew safely to Earth. So I wanted to mention that. And I really hope you guys will watch that documentary because it's so good. I love it. Okay, let's go back and talk about the investigation. Immediately after the fire, NASA Chief James Webb asked President Johnson if NASA could self-investigate promising to be truthful and to keep the appropriate people at Congress informed. And Johnson said yes. So then another NASA administrator named Robert Siemens established the Apollo 204 Review Review Board. Now remember, that was the original name of the mission, Apollo 204. So now um, they were using the official name on the investigation. So try not, I'm sorry if that confuses you, but I want to be true to the actual history. And it was called the Apollo 204 Review Board. So the board included 10 people, including very famous astronaut Frank Borman and spacecraft designer Maxime Faget. It was headed up by Langley Research Center director Floyd Thompson. The first thing they had to do, of course, was preserve the evidence. So the actual Apollo 1 command module in its destroyed state stayed um, atop the launch pad, atop launch pad 34 for a while. They wanted to get a replica of it so they could compare the damaged capsule with what it was actually supposed to look like, which I think was super smart. To that end, they summoned a nearly identical capsule from the contractor who built the command modules, North American Aviation in Downey, California. The Apollo capsule, the Apollo 1 capsule was known by its serial number 12, and the replica capsule was 14. So amazingly, the 14 example command module made it from California to Kennedy Space Center in Florida in just five days. So it was arrived on February 1st. Engineers practiced taking that capsule apart and putting it back together before moving on to the more difficult process of dissecting the damaged command module 12 where the astronauts had died. Again, the damaged capsule remained atop the launch pad. I'm not really sure why until February 17th, a full three weeks after the accident. So I'm sure one of those reasons is that it's extremely difficult to get a large spacecraft down from atop a giant rocket like that. Theoretically, it was going to stay atop that rocket until it went to space and it would come down from space, not from the top of the tower. They had to use a special sling to get it down. And the research doesn't say, but I'm wondering if they also had to invent the sling right quick because they didn't already have a means of getting the thing down. I am not sure, but that seems like it could definitely account for some of the delay in getting the command module returned to solid ground before they could take it apart and try to figure out what went wrong. In any case, after they got the command module down, they put it in a warehouse and began investigating up close all the burnt areas and comparing them to the intact areas on the twin command module 14 to try and figure out where the fire started and hopefully what started it. Um, It had affected different areas of the spacecraft and you can see kind of with any kind of art or like fire investigation, you can usually see where it starts. So. All of this hard work resulted in a 3,000-page report delivered by the Apollo 204 Review Board on April 5th, 1967. Now, I do want to say that President Johnson gave NASA permission to self-investigate, but both houses of Congress with oversight on NASA, basically those who approved funding, also conducted investigations. 
the results weren't particularly different or shocking or anything. So we're going to just go what was with what was uncovered with the NASA investigation so that I won't be overly redundant here. But I will say that the Senate investigation was very combative and Senator and future Vice President Walter Mondale himself seemed to really have it in for NASA and North American, really grilling them and putting them through it. So that was not happy or fun times for NASA or North American. And again, of course, I believe people needed to be held accountable. But I guess Walter Mondale didn't like how much we were spending on NASA. And there were a few senators off who authored scathing criticisms of NASA. But in the end, Apollo was allowed to continue. Everyone wanted to push forward with Kennedy's goal of getting to the moon. So they passed that uh, tough time of investigation by Congress. So let's talk about the investigation results. This is weird to me, but there was no like a definite pinpointed cause of the fire. It kind of bothers me a lot. Um, but there were a bunch of literal rocket scientists working on this, and I am not exactly a genius. So I think I'm in no place to criticize them for this. And I got to assume they did their best. But dang, wouldn't you want to be exactly, exactly, exactly sure what started the fire if you were an astronaut before you climbed back in one of those command modules? I definitely would. But according to an article on NASA.gov, the best they could say was investigators found evidence of arcing in several wires in the spacecraft underneath Grissom's left hand area near the environment control system. So it was an electrical surge of some sort, a spark from a wire, um, but nothing like super concrete. So that being said, they still did identify several causes of the accident. So we'll go through those now. Number one was an ignition source probably related to vulnerable wiring carrying spacecraft power and, quote, vulnerable plumbing carrying a combustible and corrosive coolant. Number two, a pure oxygen atmosphere at higher than atmospheric pressure. This was super, super dangerous. There's a lot of technical stuff in the difference between having partial oxygen and nitrogen atmospheres that I'm not going to go into. You can definitely look into it on your own with a quick Google. But basically, you know, pure oxygen is super, super flammable. Number three, a cabin sealed with a hatch cover, which could not be quickly removed at high pressure. So that's, we're talking about the inner, the inner hatch there. And number four, an extensive distribution of combustible materials in the cabin, meaning that place was packed with flammable stuff. And the oxygen environment, like literally everything was on fire within seconds, like within 15 seconds, it was all over. Number five, inadequate emergency preparedness. This is kind of that failure of imagination I was talking about. So inadequate emergency preparedness, preparedness when it comes to rescue or medical assistance and crew escape. So that those were the causes. There were nobody's heads like super, super rolled, but there was on the NASA side some staff changes. Uh, Apollo spacecraft program office manager Joseph Shea was transferred to a different NASA job in Washington, D.C., which he kind of saw through as just like a non-job to get him out of the way. And he quit after two months and went to be a vice president at Polaroid. And on the contractor side, the contractor is North American Aviation who built the Apollo spacecraft. NASA demanded that someone resign or get fired. And so the chief engineer on the project, Harrison A. Storms, called Stormy, was fired by North American President John L. Atwood. So those are the heads that kind of rolled. There wasn't any huge, 
huge consequences or like broad sweeping consequences for people. So we talked a little bit more about the speech by um, Gene Kranz. I just wanted to throw in a couple other quotes from him when um, talking about how they moved forward. So he said, we were too gung-ho about the schedule and we blocked out all of the problems we saw each day in our work. Every element of the program was in trouble and so were we. So this was kind of uh, just like a moving forward of like, but we have to press on no matter what. And of course he took responsibility for that and that from that came his tough and competent speech. Um, and he also told his staff that each day when you enter the room, meaning their, their offices that they had tough and competent written on their blackboards, um, these words will remind you of the price paid by Grissom, White, and Chaffee. These words are the price of admission to the ranks of mission control. So tough and competent is one way they moved forward. The next way they moved forward was they completely redesigned the command module um, with the help of obviously their contract on North American Aviation who built the thing. Apollo flights were grounded while the command module was redesigned. And there were many problems found with the original design. Ah! including, of course, the fateful inward opening hatches, but also some shoddy workmanship, which Christopher Kraft um, alluded to, not alluded to, said out loud in that quote that I read earlier. Um, it was decided that the remaining command modules of the original design would be used only for uncrewed tests. So those that first pass of command modules that had been designed were just for testing only without men in them. Future missions and crewed tests would be on the new design called Block 2. The astronauts who would be flying the next Apollo mission and their backup crews spent some time with the newly redesigned spacecraft and held a press conference saying that they were confident in the changes and the safety of the vehicle. They specifically talked about the new outward opening hatch, the removal or replacement of flammable materials in the cabin, flame-resistant spacesuits, and the protection on the many bundles of wiring within the spacecraft. In addition, it was decided to test and launch with an environment of 60% oxygen and 40% nitrogen in the cabin rather than pure oxygen, which would be safer. Okay, let's talk about how we finally got to it being called Apollo 1 instead of Apollo 204. As I mentioned, the Apollo flights, flights were starting with 200 but the widows of Grissom, White, and Chaffee requested that their husband's doomed mission be forever known as Apollo 1 out of respect for them, and NASA agreed, which I think we can all agree was the right call. So um, even though some un unmanned flights had gone before Apollo 204, it was as the first manned mission named Apollo 1. And all missions in the Apollo program thereafter were subsequently named accordingly. The next one that actually flew with people in it, so Apollo 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 were unmanned, um, was Apollo 7 with a crew of Wally Shira, Don Isley, and Walter Cunningham. And it went, went up successfully in October 1968, so about 21 months after the fire. And then, of course, as we know, Apollo continued on successfully. Apollo 8 is the first flight that actually went to the moon. They didn't land there, but they were very close and proved they, we could get that close. And then Apollo 11, famously with Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins, landed on the moon in July of 1969. And... Yeah, 
Then NASA had a lot of good years after that. And then they kind of fell back on safety again, which we talked about in Columbia and we will talk about again in Challenger in the future. But let's wrap up this one first. Um, let's talk about their memorials. Gus Grissom and Roger Chaffee are buried at Arlington National Cemetery near Washington, D.C. In the documentary Mission Control, which I really want you guys to watch, you can see footage from their funerals and it's very poignant and touching. Um, I, again, I really hope you guys watch it. All three astronauts were posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom at different times, and an Apollo 1 mission patch was left on the moon in their memory by Apollo 11 astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. They are, with the crews of Challenger and Columbia, part of the Space Mirror Memorial at the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex. So that is Apollo 1, guys, the first astronauts we ever lost, and we lost them on the ground. I want to say thank you to Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee for their bravery and my condolences even all these years later to their families who I'm sure are still missing them to this day. I uh, want to throw in real quick, I talked about Mission Control, the documentary on YouTube. Also, Nat Geo, um, National Geographic on Disney Plus has a really good one with beautiful, um, beautiful footage of this crew called Apollo Missions to the Moon. And it also has footage of the funerals and their families. And it is, it's not really narrated. It's only narrated by like news clippings from the time. And it's really also very poignant. So it's not just about Apollo 1 and neither is Mission Control, but it's, um, it features it, of course, because it's a huge big deal. And it just has some beautiful footage. So I hope you guys watch that too and enjoy. All right, that is it for me. Thank you so much for joining me on the Disaster Queen podcast. I will be back in two weeks with another episode. And before I go, I'm going to beg you to leave me a rating and review. I have no pride, you guys. I really want this show to grow and to reach more people. So please share it with your friends. Leave me a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow me on Instagram at Disaster Queen Pod. And um, I'm on threads, the same, same Disaster Queen Pod not really so much on Twitter anymore now that they rebranded it. I'm just like, but we'll see. I don't know. Or, and also please read my blog posts about each episode where you'll find some more behind the scenes details at disasterqueen.com. All right. Thanks for joining me. Stay safe, you guys, and don't be a disaster. The Disaster Queen podcast is written, researched, and produced by me, Jenny Rapson, the Disaster Queen. Original theme music and sound engineering by Robert Rapson. Editing is by Josh Rapson. You can get him for your editing needs at joshrapson.edits at gmail.com. Original podcast artwork is by Ken Clark. And disasterqueen.com website design is by Hello Chicky Design. Check her link in the show notes for all your site design needs. All show notes can be found at disasterqueen.com. Got an episode suggestion? Email me at disasterqueenpod at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow at disasterqueenpod on Instagram and at disasterqpod on Twitter.